Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, December 14, 2023, we feature articles on semaglutide for prevention of cardiovascular events, an mRNA-based RSV pre-F vaccine in older adults, recombinant or standard dose influenza vaccine, tibentafusp in metastatic uveal melanoma, and on the predominance of Medicare Advantage, a review article on cannabis-related disorders and toxic effects, a case report of a woman with abnormal movements and confusion, and perspective articles on medicine's lessons for AI regulation, on unwinding continuous Medicaid coverage, and on something for sleep. Semaglutide and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Obesity Without Diabetes by Michael Linkoff from the Cleveland Clinic, Ohio, and colleagues. Semaglutide, a glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1 receptor agonist, has been shown to reduce the risk of adverse cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes. This study evaluated whether semaglutide can reduce cardiovascular risk associated with overweight and obesity in patients without diabetes. 17,604 patients 45 years of age or older who had pre-existing cardiovascular disease, a body mass index of 27 or greater, and no history of diabetes, were randomly assigned to receive once-weekly subcutaneous semaglutide at a dose of 2.4 milligrams or placebo. The mean duration of follow-up was 39.8 months, a primary cardiovascular endpoint event of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke occurred in 6.5% of patients in the semaglutide group and in 8% of patients in the placebo group. Adverse events leading to permanent discontinuation of the trial product occurred in 16.6% of the patients in the semaglutide group and 8.2% of the patients in the placebo group. In patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease and overweight or obesity but without diabetes, 2.4 milligrams of weekly subcutaneous semaglutide was superior to placebo in reducing the incidence of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke at a mean follow-up of 3.3 years. Amit Kara from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dallas, and Tiffany Powell Wiley from the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland, write in an editorial that currently more than 20 million people in the United States have coronary artery disease and most are persons with overweight or obesity, and only approximately 30% have concomitant diabetes. Even in the context of well-controlled risk factors and very low, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels, the residual risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in these persons is unacceptably high. Thus, the trial by Linkoff and colleagues provides a welcome treatment option that might be extended to millions of additional patients. However, the results of the trial must be considered in the context of public health approaches to address obesity. Semaglutide comes with a significant cost, both to patients and to society, given current pricing, 
for GLP-1 receptor agonists, which makes this treatment inaccessible for many. Along the obesity treatment continuum, intensive lifestyle interventions and bariatric surgery remain effective but underutilized options, particularly for under-resourced populations that are disproportionately affected by obesity. Finally, the prevention of obesity before it develops should be our primary goal. Socioeconomic, environmental, and psychosocial factors contribute to incident obesity, and therefore equity-focused obesity prevention and treatment efforts must target multiple levels. The trial by Linkoff and colleagues provides evidence of improved cardiovascular disease outcomes with GLP-1 receptor agonists in patients without diabetes. However, we must continue to address the upstream underpinnings of obesity and the downstream effects on the communities that are the most vulnerable to the obesity epidemic and have the least access to these new treatment options. Efficacy and safety of an mRNA-based RSV pre-F vaccine in older adults by Eleanor Wilson from Moderna, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and colleagues. Respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, can cause substantial morbidity and mortality among older adults. An mRNA-based RSV vaccine, mRNA-1345, encoding the stabilized RSV prefusion F-glycoprotein, is undergoing clinical investigation. In this Phase 2-3 trial, 35,541 adults 60 years of age or older were randomly assigned to receive one dose of mRNA-1345 or placebo. The median follow-up was 112 days. The primary analyses were conducted when at least 50% of the anticipated cases of RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease had occurred. Vaccine efficacy was 83.7% against RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease with at least two signs or symptoms, and 82.4% against the disease with at least three signs or symptoms. Vaccine efficacy was 68.4% against RSV-associated acute respiratory disease. Protection was observed against both RSV subtypes, A and B, and was generally consistent across subgroups defined according to age and coexisting conditions. Participants in the mRNA-1345 group had a higher incidence of solicited local adverse reactions, 58.7% versus 16.2% with placebo, and of systemic adverse reactions, 47.7%, versus 32.9%. Most reactions were mild to moderate in severity and were transient. Serious adverse events occurred in 2.8% of the participants in both trial groups. A single dose of the mRNA-1345 vaccine resulted in no evident safety concerns and led to a lower incidence of RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease and of RSV-associated acute respiratory disease than placebo among adults 60 years of age or older. In an editorial, Amanda Cohen and Aaron Hall from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Atlanta, write that in the trial by Wilson and colleagues, the trial population, median age 67 years, broadly reflects the age of adults hospitalized with RSV infection in the United States. But some disparities were present. 
For example, among persons hospitalized for RSV infection, a younger median age is observed among black, Hispanic, and American Indian or Alaska Native persons than among white persons. Moreover, 75.9% of the trial participants had a score indicating fit status on the frailty scale, and persons with immunocompromise were excluded from the trial. Thus, as in other clinical trials of RSV vaccine, the population that was studied was not representative of the population of older adults who would most benefit from RSV protection, a situation that limits generalizability and highlights the ongoing need for greater inclusion of these populations in clinical trials. An important consideration will be how much protection an mRNA vaccine provides during subsequent RSV seasons and whether subsequent boosting will be appropriate. Such questions about duration of immunity, along with reactogenicity, and cold chain handling and storage considerations remain important areas for further evaluation in the implementation of mRNA vaccines. As often happens with life-saving immunizations, RSV vaccines are being initially produced and approved for use in high-income countries, although efforts are underway by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others to help ensure access to RSV vaccines for pregnant persons in lower-income countries. As the article by Wilson and colleagues exemplifies, the development of safe and effective vaccines against RSV has been a long and tortuous journey marked by discoveries and setbacks, but that now stands poised to have substantial effects on public health. Recombinant or standard dose influenza vaccine in adults under 65 years of age by Amber Shaw from the Kaiser Permanente Vaccine Study Center, Oakland, California, and colleagues. Quadrivalent recombinant influenza vaccines contain three times the amount of hemagglutinin in protein than standard-dose egg-based vaccines, and the recombinant formulation is not susceptible to antigenic drift during manufacturing. In this cluster-randomized observational study, Kaiser Permanente Northern California facilities routinely administered either a high-dose recombinant influenza vaccine, flu-block quadrivalent, or one of two standard-dose egg-based influenza vaccines during the 2018-2019 and 2019-2020 influenza seasons to 1,630,328 adults 50 to 64 years of age and 18 to 49 years of age. During the study period, 1,386 cases of PCR-confirmed influenza were diagnosed in the recombinant vaccine group and 2,435 cases in the standard dose group. Among the participants who were 50 to 64 years of age, 559 participants, two cases per 1,000, tested positive for influenza in the recombinant vaccine group as compared with 925 participants, 2.34 cases per 1,000 in the standard dose group. Relative vaccine effectiveness, 15.3%. In the same age group, the relative vaccine effectiveness against influenza A was 15.7%. 
the recombinant vaccine was not significantly more protective against influenza-related hospitalization than were the standard-dose vaccines. The high-dose recombinant vaccine conferred more protection against PCR-confirmed influenza than a standard-dose egg-based vaccine among adults between the ages of 50 and 64 years. Three-year overall survival with Tebentafusp in metastatic uveal melanoma by Jessica Hassel from the University Hospital Heidelberg, Germany, and colleagues. Tebentafusp, a T-cell receptor bispecific molecule that targets glycoprotein 100 and CD3, is approved for adult patients who are positive for HLA-A0201 and have unresectable or metastatic uveal melanoma. The primary analysis in this phase 3 trial supported a long-term survival benefit associated with the drug. The investigators now report the three-year efficacy and safety results from the trial. HLA-A0201 positive patients with previously untreated metastatic uveal melanoma were randomly assigned in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive tebentafusp or the investigator's choice of therapy with pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, or decarbazine. At a minimum follow-up of 36 months, Median overall survival was 21.6 months in the Tebentafusp group and 16.9 months in the control group. The estimated percentage of patients surviving at three years was 27% in the Tebentafusp group and 18% in the control group. The most common treatment-related adverse events of any grade in the Tebentafusp group were rash, pyrexia, pruritus, and hypotension. Most Tebentafusp-related adverse events occurred early during treatment, and no new adverse events were observed with long-term administration. The percentage of patients who discontinued treatment because of adverse events continued to be low in both treatment groups, 2% in the Tebentafusp group and 5% in the control group. No treatment-related deaths occurred. This three-year analysis supported a continued long-term benefit of Tebentafusp for overall survival among adult HLA-AO201 positive patients with previously untreated metastatic uveal melanoma. Cannabis-Related Disorders and Toxic Effects, a review article by David Gorelick from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Baltimore. Worldwide, Cannabis, sometimes called marijuana, is one of the most commonly used psychoactive substances. Heavy cannabis use has adverse effects on physical and mental health. Cannabis use is strongly associated with an increased risk of motor vehicle crashes, suicidality, and cardiovascular and pulmonary disease. The major effects of cannabis are generated by the interaction of THC with the endogenous cannabinoid, endocannabinoid system. This article reviews the diagnosis and treatment of the seven cannabis-related disorders defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, text revision. Cannabis use induces a variety of acute psychological and physiological effects that vary in intensity and duration according to the dose, the route of administration, and the degree of tolerance in the user. Cannabis intoxication is usually mild and self-limited, and generally managed without medication. Cannabis use is associated with 
four subacute psychiatric syndromes that either persist after the initial 24 hours of acute intoxication or involve symptoms that may warrant independent clinical attention. These include cannabis-induced anxiety disorder, psychotic disorder, sleep disorder, and delirium. Cannabis use disorder, like other substance use disorders, is a chronic relapsing condition. The core feature is loss of control over cannabis use, which is reflected in persistent use of cannabis despite adverse consequences. And finally, a substantial reduction or a cessation of cannabis use after heavy or long-term use results in a withdrawal syndrome, though it is usually mild and self-limiting. A 68-year-old woman with abnormal movements and confusion, a case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Bart Qualish and colleagues. A 68-year-old woman was admitted to the hospital because of worsening confusion and abnormal movements of the face, arms, and legs. Nine weeks earlier, she had presented to the hospital because of intermittent slurred speech and dizziness that had lasted for one day. Her National Institutes of Health Stroke Scale score, which ranges from 0 to 42 with higher scores indicating more severe neurologic deficits, was 1, owing to the presence of mild to moderate dysarthria. Findings on MRI were consistent with an acute ischemic infarct without hemorrhage or mass effect. During the next six weeks, abnormal movements developed that were widely distributed involving the face, mouth, tongue, arms, and legs on both sides of the patient's body. The movements were initially intermittent, but progressively worsened and occurred without premonition and were considered involuntary. These movements affected her ability to function and were associated with falls despite the use of a walker. At the time of the current admission, a family member observed that the patient was confused and unable to maintain a conversation. MRI of the head showed multiple strokes. The description of this patient's movements was most consistent with chorea, which is characterized by involuntary, non-rhythmic movements due to continuous flow of muscle contractions from one muscle group to another, creating a dance-like appearance. Autoimmune chorea may be associated with systemic autoimmune conditions, such as systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, and antiphospholipid syndrome, APS. Test results confirmed the diagnosis of APS and SLE. The Predominance of Medicare Advantage, a health policy report by Gretchen Jacobson from the Commonwealth Fund, New York, and David Blumenthal from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Boston. If current trends persist, more than half the 66 million beneficiaries of Medicare will be enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans in 2023. This constitutes an historic milestone in the evolution of a unique federal program that has profoundly benefited older and disabled Americans and deeply influenced the evolution of our health care system. When President Lyndon Johnson and his congressional allies secured the enactment of Medicare in 1965, it is safe to say they never imagined that most eligible Americans would be enrolled in the types of payment and service arrangements that Medicare Advantage offers, rather than the traditional fee-for-service system. The anticipated predominance of Medicare Advantage 
raises obvious questions about why it has developed, what it means for the quality and cost of care available to Medicare beneficiaries, and what it means for our health care system as a whole. The Medicare Advantage program enables Medicare beneficiaries to enroll in private health plans that pay for and, in some cases, provide their care. One key question is whether Medicare can afford Medicare Advantage, which costs the federal government at least 6% more per enrollee. A second issue for Medicare concerns what the popularity of Medicare Advantage reveals about the limits of traditional Medicare. Older and disabled Americans are clearly very attracted to certain aspects of Medicare Advantage plan design, such as extra benefits and caps on out-of-pocket spending. Another question concerns whether the profits earned by Medicare Advantage plans have become excessive. And a still larger question concerns the implications of the success of Medicare Advantage plans for the role of competitive markets in health care. Medicine's Lessons for AI Regulation, a perspective by Laura Stark from Vanderbilt University, Nashville. Regulation of artificial intelligence, AI, is imminent in the United States and much of the world. In October, President Biden issued an executive order on AI regulation, and lawmakers hope to pass legislation soon. Several U.S. states have already taken action on AI oversight. The European Union issued draft rules, which will be adopted in the coming months, that differ substantially from U.S. proposals. This range of jurisdictions and rules suggests that there are various possible futures for AI regulation in the United States. The path forward will have important effects on medicine. There are lessons to be learned from the past that are relevant to the future of AI. First, the history of human subjects' regulation shows that a core decision to be made relates to the role of professions in guiding or replacing government regulations. It will be important to focus on discussions of who, specifically, should have authority to establish and enforce rules for AI with public values in mind. Second, attention to data ethics, including questions of how strenuously to regulate data collection and ownership, will be key to robust AI regulation. Third, the history of human subjects regulation shows that for any fast-moving area of science, anticipating and planning for rule revision is necessary. AI's emerging properties and new use cases warrant clear, built-in mechanisms to allow speedy regulatory updates made with meaningful public input to support science, medicine, and social justice. Preliminary Data on Unwinding Continuous Medicaid Coverage a perspective by Adriana McIntyre from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Boston, and colleagues. One of the most substantial changes to health insurance coverage since the Affordable Care Act was implemented will unfold during 2023 and 2024. In early 2023, the uninsured rate in the United States fell to an historic low, in part because of increases in insurance subsidies enacted during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also because of a pandemic-era Medicaid policy, the continuous coverage provision. 
Starting in early 2020, states received additional federal program funding under the condition that they pause eligibility redeterminations in Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, collectively referred to as Medicaid here, among other requirements. States couldn't remove enrollees, even if their eligibility would otherwise have lapsed. Nationally, enrollment in these programs swelled from 71 million people in February 2020 to 94 million people in March 2023. In April 2023, however, states were permitted to start disenrolling people from Medicaid if they were no longer eligible or didn't complete the redetermination process. States have 14 months to fully unwind the Medicaid continuous coverage provision. Before terminating coverage, states must attempt an ex parte renewal in which they check available sources of information such as state unemployment and wage databases to determine whether they can independently confirm an enrollee's eligibility. If ex parte renewal is unsuccessful, redetermination paperwork is mailed to the enrollee. Federal officials projected in 2022 that 15 million people could lose Medicaid coverage because of unwinding, with higher numbers possible under certain circumstances. About 45% of enrollees losing coverage were predicted to be removed from the Medicaid program despite remaining eligible because they didn't successfully complete the renewal process. Despite warnings about the potential scope of coverage loss, Congress did not establish strong enforceable guardrails for redetermination processes, and there has been broad variation among states in policy approaches to unwinding. Healthcare coverage for tens of millions of Americans is at stake. But there is still time for policymakers, employers, healthcare organizations, and clinicians to support patients and minimize the risk of coverage loss. Something for Sleep, a perspective by Mark Ernest from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, Aurora. My sleep is terrible. I've tried everything I can think of and nothing works. Would you write me a prescription for Secanol so I can get some rest? It was an odd request. The patient's words had a wooden, rehearsed quality to them. And though Dr. Ernest had cared for her for years, they had never discussed insomnia, much less tried any sleeping aids. And Secanol? A barbiturate with a high potential for a fatal overdose? It took Dr. Ernest just a moment to realize that his patient was requesting a prescription to help her end her life. At the time, 1998, Oregon had just passed the Death with Dignity Act. But in Colorado, where Dr. Ernest practiced, a prescription written to end a life was illegal and ethically not something he would consider lightly, if at all. The patient's sleeplessness was not a surprise. A few months before this encounter, Dr. Ernest had sent her to a surgeon for a biopsy of a lump on her calf. We got it all, was how the surgeon summarized the procedure. But a few days later, the pathologist characterized the mass as a leiomyosarcoma. 
A radiologist reading the patient's chest CT later that week commented on the mass in her lung, likely malignant. In the span of a week, she had learned that she had cancer and that she would not be cured. By the time of her request for Secanol, she had completed radiation treatments for the lung nodule and was still receiving chemotherapy in a clinical trial. Rather than focusing on the Secanol, Dr. Ernest asked how her treatments were going. Fine, she said. Mostly, I'm just tired. My appetite is down. I have a cough, but it's not too bad. The lack of sleep is the main thing. The patient managed the panic during the day, but at night, it was too much. It had been difficult to trust Dr. Ernest, she said, and even more difficult to turn her care over to the oncologists and surgeon. She insisted she had no thoughts of harming herself and that she was committed to living her fullest life for as long as she could. Dr. Ernest did his best to convince her that if and when her cancer caused symptoms, they could treat them. They could keep her comfortable and help her live that full life. But her sleeplessness became Dr. Ernest's. Over the nights that followed, he lay awake, turning the situation over and over in his mind. What was the right thing to do? He believed her. She was distraught, but not depressed. Their conversation spilled out over a few more visits. Her questions became more pointed. Why did she have to trust him? Why couldn't he trust her? It was the right question. Why was it her responsibility to trust him and not equally his to trust her? Finally, they reached an agreement. In our Images in Clinical Medicine, a 26-year-old man presented with a five-day history of an asymptomatic rash, sore throat, fevers, chills, and malaise. Examination showed red spots across the chest and neck, palatal petechiae, buccal mucosal ulcerations, and pharyngeal erythema. A rapid antibody test for HIV was negative. However, a subsequent fourth-generation combination HIV antigen and antibody test was positive, and the HIV viral load was greater than 10 million copies per milliliter. A diagnosis of acute HIV infection was made. In acute HIV infection, HIV antibodies do not form until several weeks after infection, whereas HIV viremia and the P24 antigen are detectable much earlier. Antiretroviral therapy was started and the patient's symptoms rapidly abated. In another image, a 37-year-old woman who lived on a remote island presented to the emergency department with a 10-day history of abdominal pain. The physical examination was notable for a gravid abdomen. An MRI of the abdomen showed a non-gravid uterus, a normally formed intra-abdominal fetus, and a placenta that attached to the peritoneum above the sacral promontory. A diagnosis of abdominal pregnancy, a rare type of ectopic pregnancy, was made. Owing to the high risk of maternal hemorrhage and fetal demise, the patient was transferred to a tertiary care hospital. At 29 weeks gestation, a laparotomy with infant delivery, placental arterial embolization, and partial removal of the placenta was performed. The baby was admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit. On postoperative day 12, the remaining placenta was surgically removed. The mother and baby were discharged home 25 days and two months, respectively, after the birth.
This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.